Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphin. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. We dive into a variety of cases in both the U.S. and abroad. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of, like the Pocatello babysitter murders or the canal murders. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime, like the Tylenol murders and the Lindbergh kidnapping. We also dive into cases that are currently breaking thanks to DNA and forensic genealogy. Sometimes you'll hear from people connected to the cases, like the interview we did with the brother-in-law of the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo. There are close to 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now, including full seasons covering the Zodiac Killer, the Golden State Killer, and Ted Bundy, and new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Explicit content is found in this episode. So, listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, so I'm going to be sharing this true crime story with you. It happened on Halloween. Now, Halloween happens to be one of my favorite holidays, but I can't ever go a Halloween on True Crime Fan Club without sharing some type of story or case that happened on Halloween. And I say story because, as you remember, a few years ago, I actually had a really talented author come on and write a fictional story that we presented as a real case and kind of fooled everyone on the show. So I'm actually going to be sharing a real case with you that happened today. And I just want to say I hope everyone has a happy and safe Halloween and thank you for supporting True Crime Fan Club. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. Halloween is steeped in lore legend, and history. From its beginnings in Samhain to the subsequent adoption by the Catholic Church of November 1st as All Saints Day, Halloween has long been considered the day when the veil between the living and the dead was lifted. In colonial America, the Puritans did not celebrate Halloween, but further south in Maryland, the telling of ghost stories became commonplace. In the 1800s, as more Irish immigrants settled in America, Trick-or-treating was adopted, along with dressing up in costumes and the creation of jack-o'-lanterns. Slasher films starting with Black Christmas became popular in 1974. Coincidentally, in the same year, Ronald Clark O'Brien gave his son candy laced with cyanide. He was called the man who ruined Halloween. And to this day, parents still check candy to try to detect tampering. Okay. On to the show. On Halloween 2010, 16-year-old Devin Griffin returned to his mother's home before church to change clothes, then left again with his father. After church, his father dropped him back off at his home, and Devin went into his bedroom and played video games for a while. Then he realized the house was too quiet. He went in search of his mother or stepfather, calling out for them as he walked through the house. It was after 1 p.m., so Devin thought his mother should be out of bed by now. Walking downstairs into the master bedroom, though, he saw her and his stepfather, William Liskey Sr., in bed, with the maroon comforter pulled up over them. 
He started talking to them to wake them up and walked around to his mother, Susan's side of the bed. When they didn't stir, he shook her leg, but he still didn't get a response. So he pulled the comforter down a little and found blood-soaked bedding and pillows. At first, he thought it was a Halloween prank, but it slowly dawned on him that this was real. Crying, he ran out of the house and called his Aunt Lori, who called 911. Lori told the 911 operator, My nephew came home and there's blood everywhere. When police responded, they found William and Susan and also found the body of Derek Griffin, Susan's older son. His bedroom door was locked and when officers kicked it in, they found Derek curled up on the bed, facing the wall. He suffered blunt force trauma to the head and probably died quickly. As the house was being searched, investigators found a clawfoot hammer, which was consistent with Derek's wounds. Devin told investigators the family owned numerous guns, which were retrieved and sent to the state crime lab for testing. Muddy footprints were found on the deck near the pond, which led officers to believe the murder weapon had been thrown into the pond. However, no weapon was found once they drained the pond. Investigators developed a better timeline as Devin told them more about his day. He had come to the house before church at around 9.30 that morning to change shirts. When there for the first time, he only saw his stepbrother William Liskey Jr., who was known as BJ. Devin was only there for maybe about five minutes, but during that time, BJ asked him what he was doing and how long he was going to be there. Devin revealed to officers this wasn't like his stepbrother, who was usually more morose and didn't speak to Devin at all. Devin told officers BJ seemed happier, he was more upbeat and more talkative. Now, not long after Devin left to go to church, BJ took his family's Ford truck and drove to their hunting cabin in Carroll, Ohio. He had been there less than an hour when Carroll County Sheriff's deputies arrived to arrest him. An uneaten Subway sandwich was on the kitchen counter. Investigators speculated that he did not get a chance to eat it before he was arrested. BJ Liskey, 24 years old, appeared before a judge on November 2, 2010. He was calm and quiet during the 15-minute hearing. He was charged with a single count of murder until the grand jury could convene. Prosecuting attorney Mark Mulligan said the single charge was hastily prepared in the front seat of a car at the crime scene. Liskey told the judge he was unemployed and had no vehicles or bank accounts. He had been living in a group home in Sandusky based on past violent incidents against his family. Autopsy results showed that Bill had been shot five times in the head with a 22 caliber handgun. Susan was shot two to three times to the head and once in the body. The autopsy confirmed that Derek was bludgeoned to death with a claw hammer. Neighbors of the Liskies told reporters that Bill and BJ were good friends, but they often fought. The day before the murders, Bill and BJ had gone hunting on Saturday, after Bill had picked up BJ from the Sandusky halfway home. Father and son had killed one deer. When they finished and returned from eastern Ohio, it was too late to drive to Sandusky. So BJ returned to the Liskey home. Bill had friends over that night, a get-together in the pole barn that went until at least midnight. The neighbors told investigators that they had assisted with peace operations in the past between BJ and the rest of the family, particularly Susan. They also reported that they suspected BJ in the killing and wounding of several of their pets.
In 2006, BJ had been declared incompetent because of schizoaffective disorder, and Bill was declared his legal guardian. After the murders, attorney Gary Cohill was named BJ's guardian. After the grand jury convened, BJ was indicted on six counts of murder, which carried death penalty specifications. Four of the charges also had firearm specifications, since two of the murders were committed with guns. A judge set bail at $3 million, a million dollars for each of the victims. New details now on the man accused of murdering three family members. He faced a judge this morning in Ottawa County Common Pleas Court. William Liskey is charged with six counts of aggravated murder. Liskey will be evaluated within the next 30 days to see if he's competent to stand trial. The 24-year-old is accused of murdering his father, William Liskey, his stepmother, Susan, and her son, Derek. All three were found dead in their Jerusalem Road home on Halloween. If Liskey is found guilty on all the charges, he could face the death penalty. He's behind bars right now on $3 million bond. In March 2011, BJ was found competent to stand trial. He had two separate evaluations, one conducted by Court Diagnostic and Treatment Center and the other by Twin Valley Behavioral Health Care. It was announced in July 2011 that further investigation had revealed Susan Liskey had been sexually assaulted by BJ, but the order of events was not clear. In August 2011, BJ withdrew his not guilty plea and admitted he had committed the murders of Bill Liskey, 53, Susan Liskey, 46, and Derek Griffin, 23, on Halloween 2010. Prosecutors believe he had killed Derek first with the hammer so as not to alarm others in the house. He then went to the master bedroom, where he shot his father, then his stepmother. The shell casings were never found. When BJ was arrested, blood and DNA were found on his shoes and his boxer shorts. In September 2011, BJ was given three life sentences without the possibility of parole. The prosecutor said the plea bargain was the best outcome, since BJ could not appeal the verdict. Victim statements were read at the hearing. A statement prepared by Lori Morris and read by a victim's advocate said, I will never get the events of that day out of my head. BJ tore our hearts out and destroyed our family's happiness. We've been forced to lie, tell a father with Alzheimer's why his favorite daughter isn't there. We've learned how to hate. She also said, We feel such crippling grief. We will never hear Susan's laughter or see Derek smile again, or feel a bear hug from Bill. Another family member said, There isn't a day that goes by that we don't think of them. You see something like this on TV and you don't think it could happen to your family. You love someone so much and then they take something away from you. My only brother, my sister-in-law, Derek. I just don't know how you could do it when he loved you so much. She wept as she read the statement and began staring at BJ. The judge told her to address the bench, but she could not and broke down sobbing. BJ Liskey read a statement he had prepared, part of which said, I don't expect anyone to forgive me. I pray to God to ease the pain I've caused. I can't really explain why all this happened, but I think it had to do with my mental illness. I still do believe Satan is still working for the destruction of our souls. I believe it was an internal struggle with my mental illness and my struggle with the devil. May God rest their souls. He also said, 
There won't be a day that goes by that I won't feel horrible for what I've done. It's all my fault and I don't blame anyone but myself. I never intended for this to happen. It wasn't because of Sue or Derek or even my father. I loved my dad very much and it makes me feel sick every time I think about what I did. The judge said he had read letters from family members and even BJ when considering the sentence, and in the end, decided life without parole was appropriate. On March 31, 2015, BJ Liskey was found dead in his cell from a self-inflicted wound. That is the only information available. Support for True Crime Fan Club is brought to you by Incipio. Incipio offers legendary protection for all of your devices from phones to AirPods to tablets. They obsess over their tech to protect yours. Now, here's the thing. I drop my phone pretty much every single day or I bang it into a wall because I'm just a klutz and I don't pay attention to anything that I do. So my phone is abused regularly pretty much every day because I just don't pay attention. Did you know that every 12 organic core cases reduces one pound of plastic from landfill waste? That is amazing, and that's why I love Incipio so much. Organic Core Clear is made up of 100% compostable materials that reduces landfill waste by naturally re-entering the environment from where it started. All Organic Core Clear cases are also wireless charging compatible, and there's a lifetime warranty, so they've got you covered. Don't forget to recycle the packaging after you get your new case on your phone. All of the packaging is 100% recyclable with eco-friendly water-based ink. So whatever you're up to, just know your phone will be protected from drops as high as 14 feet. Organic or Clear is available to purchase now at your local Verizon or online at verizon.com. Slasher movies typically depict innocent victims screaming and scrambling to get away from a mass killer who is methodically hunting them for some unknown reason. The only thing missing in our next story is the mask, but the killer did methodically track down his victims at a Halloween party. On October 31st, 1991, a Halloween party was held at the home of Robert Huff in Clarksville, Tennessee. Several people were wearing costumes, including Bob Huff and a friend, Billy Hembry, who was dressed in drag with their makeup done. Around midnight, a neighbor called the police. Aggravated by the noise coming from the party, an officer responded and spoke to several of those who attended, telling them to keep the noise down. The officer made contact with the complainant, Lester Peavy House, who was described as upset and a little angry. Lester told the officer that he had been harassed multiple times by several people at Bob's party. Lester further explained that the harassment had been homosexual. After the police left, Bob Huff expressed his anger and annoyance that Lester had called the police. According to Brian Jurison, Bob said he was going to kick Lester's ass. Bob was drinking and appeared to be drunk. Brian and another friend tried to stop Bob from leaving his apartment but Bob shook them off and opened his front door, taking two or three steps out of the door. Brian saw Lester's door open and then heard a gunshot. Bob said he had been shot and Brian pulled him back into the apartment. 
Most of the partygoers ran for the back door, including Brian. Brian reported he heard six or seven additional shots, with approximately 15 to 20 seconds in between. Another friend, David Ross, heard the initial gunshot and saw Bob blown back into the apartment. David ran into the bathroom with Misty Harding and Bob. Within seconds, the bathroom door was kicked open and David saw Lester standing there. Lester turned his sawed-off shotgun towards David and shot him in the stomach. David grabbed his stomach, bleeding badly, and fell backwards. He saw Lester shoot Misty, who fell into the bathtub. There were about five to ten seconds between the shot that hit David and the one that hit Misty. Lester exited the bathroom, jumping and screaming, acting like a wild person. David escaped through the back door and saw numerous people piling into a car. Lester fired two shots at the car as it sped away. David was taken to Clarksville Memorial Hospital emergency room and then airlifted to Vanderbilt Hospital. David was in the hospital for over two weeks and had two operations while he was there. Bob Huff later testified he was really, really drunk because he had consumed about 24 beers. He did not remember seeing Lester, just that he had opened the door and Lester was standing there holding the shotgun and grinning from ear to ear before shooting Bob in the chest. Bob said he went into the bathroom to clean the blood off, then heard a loud crash right before Misty fell into the bathtub on top of him. Bob said he was bisexual, but had never made any type of advance towards Lester, nor did he leave notes under Lester's door. Lester had called the police about Bob making homosexual threats to him. Lester had also written a letter to a local paper in response to a gay awareness article. The letter was published just a week before the attacks at Bob's house. According to the court record, the letter contained derogatory remarks about homosexuals, referred to threats made by homosexual men against heterosexual men, and included a veiled reference to Huff's homosexual threats against appellant. The letter ended by saying, homosexuals should not be surprised if they get bashed. Kevin Howell was also at the Halloween party. He saw the flash and heard the initial gunshot and left when everyone else was scrambling to leave the apartment. Kevin said as he was running away from the apartment down the street, he could hear Billy Hembry screaming at the top of his lungs, then heard another gunshot. Kevin went to a convenience store a few blocks away and called 911, then went to the bathroom to calm down. When he came out, he saw Lester on the phone, covered in blood but very calm. Kevin called 911 again, and when officers pulled up, he told them that the shooter was inside the store. Lester had called 911 and reported a shooting at his house, but made it sound as if someone else was doing the shooting. He said, I heard shots. There was, there was loud shots and screaming and yelling and all kinds of commotion. The responding officers took Lester into custody, although he said he didn't fire a weapon and did not know where the blood on him came from. Officers who responded to Bob's apartment found Billy Hembry lying in the driveway. He was dead at the scene. Misty Harding was found in the bathroom, also dead at the scene. The weapon was a 410 shotgun and when a search warrant was executed on Lester's apartment, a sawed-off 410 shotgun was found in the drawer, along with an empty box of ammunition in the kitchen. 
The shotgun had been sawed down to a little over 11 inches, although the legal standard was 18 inches. The ejecting mechanism was worn, which meant shells had to be ejected manually. Misty Harding, who was only 17 at the time of her death, had been shot in the left chest and abdomen. The pattern of shot indicated she had been shot from a distance of five feet. Billy Hembry had also been shot from roughly the same distance in the chest. He was 23 years old when he was killed. Lester had been arrested numerous times in the past. One incident occurred when he was 20 years old and attending classes at Austin P. State University. Lester pulled the American flag off the flagpole at the Greenwood Junior High and stomped on it in front of numerous students. Lester lived on Greenwood Avenue at the time, and while in court for this incident, Lester stood and looked at his co-defendant and exclaimed loudly, I cannot agree with these proceedings. When asked how he would plead, he said, I will enter a plea of guilty under the jurisdiction of a state court, but what about the jurisdiction of God? The judge replied, of course, court is the only thing we have any jurisdiction over. On November 8, 1977, a shooting occurred at a zinc plant in Tennessee. Michael Calbreeze was shot six times by a 32 caliber six-shot revolver. Lester Peavy House was singled out as a person of interest almost immediately, but would not answer questions related to the shooting. However, Lester was arrested quickly and given a $10,000 bond. Apparently, the two men had played chess during lunches. Lester's trial was eventually delayed for a mental health evaluation, and the story fell out of the papers. However, he was diagnosed with a paranoid personality disorder, showing signs of delusions. He also expressed a fear of homosexuals. Although he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, this was not supported by the Middle Tennessee Mental Health Institution. In September 1978, he accepted a plea bargain where he pleaded guilty and was given time served and three years probation. In the early 1980s, Lester had moved to Duluth, Minnesota, where he was arrested for stabbing a man who refused him admission to a shelter. While in jail, he got into another fight with a fellow inmate, and more charges were added to his record. The insanity plea was supported in these cases, but his attorney advised him to plea bargain, and he was given probation for two years. On April 28, 1985, Lester attacked his sister Lana at their mother's home. Lana was visiting from out of state, and when Lester told her it was time for her to go home, she said she was spending the night. He left the room and returned with a hatchet and struck Lana with it. This was a story told to police officers when the incident occurred, but later it was reported that Lester became upset because his brother's girlfriend said, you can't fight the mafia, and he began smashing up the furniture with the hatchet. He said Lana just got in the way. After the hatchet incident, Lester was committed to the Middle Tennessee Mental Health Institute. He had nightmares about being raped, was delusional, and believed members of minorities were out to get him. The assault charges were dropped and Lester was released. After his release in 1989, although he had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and schizoid personality disorder, he wrote a letter to the editor of a local paper stating that Germans were being subjected to genocide, just like the Jews. After three skinheads were arrested for beating a man who assisted with the investigation into vandalism at a synagogue, 
Through the course of the investigation, Lester was questioned by the grand jury. Lester revealed he was a member of the National Association for the Advancement of White People, but said he was not a skinhead and was not involved with the recent vandalism of the synagogue. He was also a suspect in an alleged bomb threat against a black student organization at Vanderbilt and was under investigation for writing a threatening letter to a nun who had just returned from Central America. Sister Arlene Welding wrote a letter to the editor that said, Let us wake up before it's too late. Let us protest our government's interference in these countries. She received an anonymous letter in return, with someone threatening to, quote, bash your brains out. After officers had placed Lester in a patrol car, one of his neighbors and friends was allowed to talk to him in the car. Lester looked at his friend and said, I don't think I did it. This friend had rescued Lester once on the street after neighborhood kids had mugged him, taking groceries Lester had purchased at the local mini-mart. Others in the neighborhood called Lester Manson and Jesus because of his long hair and unkempt appearance. He was usually shabbily dressed, but many said he was intelligent and concerned with social issues. After many mental evaluations, Lester Peavy House was finally deemed competent to stand trial. In 1993, the defense relied heavily on the testimony of an expert who analyzed the drugs in Lester's system. Lester was supposed to take monthly injections of haloperidol for his schizophrenia. The expert testified that haloperidol had a tranquilizing effect on the patient, so many patients battled this with large quantities of caffeine. Caffeine shortens the effects of haloperidol so that haloperidol leaves the system quicker. Lester's attorney said that Lester's low levels of haloperidol, high doses of caffeine, along with his irrational fear of a homosexual attack, prompted the attack he committed. Lester was on trial for two counts of murder, two counts of attempted murder, and four counts of aggravated assault. During the trial, his public defender, Russell Church, contemplated quitting over the prosecutor's tactic of a surprise witness to counter the defense's expert witness. When the court allowed the surprise witness, Russell said it basically negated the defense's case. This witness was a chemist who analyzed the drug levels in Lester's system by using hairs. He testified that the other results had been overstated and the levels in his system were not quite as high as the defense said. Bob Huff, Lester's first shooting victim, was present at the trial and told reporters that Lester had been in and out of facilities all for harming people. The jury deliberated for two hours before finding Lester guilty on all charges. He received life in prison. In 2001, the state of Tennessee ruled that the families of Billy Hembry and Misty Harding could sue the mental facilities for Lester's release. The families claimed the murders could have been prevented if Lester had not been released. Like B.J. Liskey, Lester completed suicide in prison on February 10, 1997. He was found hanging in his cell at 3 o'clock in the morning and taken to the hospital, where he was pronounced dead at 6.20 p.m. Billy Hembry's father, also Billy Hembry, said that he had heard Lester died, but he tried not to think about it. Billy did not believe Lester was insane when he murdered his son and said, he knew what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. If there was ever a case for capital punishment, he was the one. Lester would not have been eligible for parole until September 12, 2081.
Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave us a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod. But since I'm still locked out of that account and nobody from Instagram has helped me, be sure to follow me at Lainey Hobbs BO on Instagram to keep up with what's going on with the show and me in general. And of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John. Content editing by Brittany Martinez. Produced by the best in the business, you already know who it is. Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check them out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or We Talk of Dreams.com. <laughs>